you. Simon, come up. I'll pray for you. Lord, thank you for Simon. Thank you um, for the words uh, that he's going to speak over us today. Um, your words, your heart, your direction. Pray for him. Amen. Great. Now, I think my sermon is not really geared to fours and five-year-olds. So you kids, if you want to go out, you can do that now with Miss Lizzie, the most beautiful Sunday school t-shirt I've ever seen. So yeah, kids, off you go. All ages. I think you have more fun out there than in here. And then uh, you guys in here, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you have them open? It's good to follow... Uh, it's a great scripture, isn't it? So we've been in a series on the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and now we've come up to verses 13 to 16, and it's looking at being salt and light. I wonder if you can guess or whether you would know which is the fastest growing church, which nation has got the fastest growing church in the world. Anyone, any ideas? China, Korea, Africa. There's a lot going on in Afghanistan. The fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, in the Islamic Republic of Iran, in a context of extreme persecution, where it's not expedient at all to follow Jesus, where it's very costly, uh, and yet, in the most unlikely of circumstances, it is the fastest growing church. I think people are very disillusioned with the expression of, of Sharia law that have been subjected to since 1979, and uh, there's been a mass turning uh, to Christ from a very, very 0.0, .0 level. Um, and lots of, lots of our brothers and sisters are in Evin prison right now. That's one of the main prisons out there. Lots of them are suffering massively. And, and a few have managed to escape. And there's this one couple that escaped to America, which would be like the promised land once you've been, been in Iran. They managed to get out to Iran. And after a few months in America, uh, the, the lady, the wife, said to her husband, Darling, please will you take me back to Iran? There is a satanic lullaby in this nation. The Christians are all asleep, and I feel myself being lulled to sleep. Now, that line is the most powerful line I've come across, I'd say, in the last five years of my life. It, in fact, I started in lockdown, I wrote a book called The Satanic Lullaby. Because whether it's America, and I think she's wrong, not all the Christians are asleep, but a lot are, and... She said, I feel myself being lulled to sleep. And what she was saying essentially was that she preferred to go back. She thought it was more insidious and dangerous to be sat in the Western world with this rockabye baby on the treetop, just being taken out, her soul being destroyed. And she rathered the very real potential consequences of returning to Iran and facing imprisonment, torture, rape, that sort of, sort of stuff. That's incredible, isn't it? And so... As we look at these verses, two questions, I suppose. Are you salty and are you shiny? As we look at light and, and salt. So I'll read it again, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Another picture. You are the light of the world, and a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and he gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So first of all, are you salty? 
Uh, Michael Yusuf, commentator, writes this. It's difficult for us in the modern world, it's difficult for us in, in, in Bath, in Coombe Down, in Fox Hill, wherever we come from, uh, to fully appreciate the value of salt in the ancient world. So Roman soldiers' wages were actually paid in salt. Leviticus 2.13 speaks to the Mosaic's Law's requirement for salt in all grain offerings. The Greeks considered salt to be divine. And different theologians have highlighted the different attributes of salt. So you could think of its whiteness representing the purity of the holy believer, or um, as salt stings an open wound, so were Christians to sting the world with judgment and rebuke, or as salt added flavor to a dish, so Christians would have the same positive impact uh, on, in their society, or as salt creates thirst, maybe uh, Jesus' people should similarly create a spiritual longing and thirst in others around them through their attractive lifestyles, all sorts of different nuances there, but probably the main purpose of salt that Jesus is really pointing to was that it stopped decay. So in saying you are the salt of the earth, he's calling on his disciples, he's calling on us to serve as sort of preservatives to stop the moral decay in our rotting culture. And you know, the, the, the listeners, they would have understood it because without refrigeration, those, those fish, they just caught in uh, the Sea of Galilee or whatever, within, within a matter of, if not hours, you know, by the next day, they'd be stinking and worthless. However, once salted, they could be stored safely away and enjoyed at a later date. So that's our privilege and our responsibility to be salt. But he, look at the verses again, he carries on with a warning. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, Jesus, he didn't say we can lose our, our salvation, but he did say we can lose our saltiness. And when salt becomes contaminated, it's poisonous, it's corrosive. And, you know, contaminated salt can't even be used uh, as fertilizer. It's literally good for nothing. And guys, turning this on ourselves, if we've lost our saltiness, that could be through compromise, through apathy, through indifference. <sighs> These are heavy verses, aren't they? Jesus' assessment is blunt and clear. And if that's the case... For you, for me, we need to repent, we need to confess, and we need to receive his restoration. So are you salty? Are you still salty? Did you used to be salty? Have you lost your saltiness? Do you want to be salty? Well, I want to say there is hope. There's always hope. And for me, you know, most of you know this, but I see a few unfamiliar faces. Our context was living in Burundi for 20 years in Central Africa, or a conflict zone. So it was, it, was, it was very easy for me, I think, for us to retain our sense of saltiness because it was so real, the danger we were in. We were living, you know, people tried to kill me, people I care about uh, were killed. It was very, very intense listening to bombs falling and that sort of stuff. I think of the church, I think of people in Sudan right now. It's, it's horrific, isn't it, what's going on this week? And they can't kid themselves they're living in, 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 in peacetime because it's not peaceful. And our challenge here is that we could, we could live with a peacetime mentality. And in peacetime, you fit in. In peacetime, there's, no, there's not much strategic planning or vigilance. And we can lose our saltiness. So, uh, and, and when we went to Burundi, it was, it was a clear step saying we're not going to embrace comfort. Whereas we, we live in a culture that's all about comfort. Everything's about comfort. How can it be more comfortable is one of the highest aspirations of our society, our consumer culture. And so if we imbibe that spirit, then we can unwittingly or wittingly craft ourselves a more comfortable cross. We can settle for a consumer religion, a consumer Jesus, whereas Jesus comes out with very clear sort of mandates, doesn't he? And, and pronouncements like, if you're going to follow me, Luke 9.23, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. And sometimes I genuinely ask myself, am I following him? Or am I expecting him to follow me? 
on my terms, at my convenience, me setting the parameters of the relationship? They're tricky questions, aren't they? So we had 10 years of peace from 2005 to 2015. Uh, and then in 2015, it kicked off again. By this stage, wife, three children. I'd been out there earlier when I was just single, and it was the most dangerous country in the world, and it was, it was much worse. But in 2015, it kicked off again, and, and it was very real, the, the likelihood of horrific stuff happening to us. And, uh, and within days, I mean, literally, I was preaching like this. This would be, so it's 2015. It was April 26, 2015. And I had to go to church on the Sunday morning because I was preaching. But... Our, our assembly, only about 30 of the 150 came because it was suddenly we're getting tweets of the dead bodies and, uh, and we had to go through burning barricades and that sort of stuff. It was very, very intense. And within, within you know, you just knew that the country, like with Sudan, it's going to go back 20 years in a, in a week. Horrific burning down of infrastructure and hospitals and all that sort of stuff. It's, it was grim. And I, 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 I wasn't having a, a mental breakdown, but I did kind of break down in a sort of cafe. I just sat there and I started weeping as I was thinking about all the pain going on. And then at our church... I was looking around at our broken body, and I was thinking, you know, well, you know, he's, he's got six kids. They're utterly traumatized right now. He frames his four-year-old daughter. She, she, every time he, she hears gunfire, which is maybe 30 times a day, she wets her pants. So that's just, you know, that's trauma, literally. Gunfire, psst. And, you know, that's been multiplied out thousands, tens of thousands of, thousands of times. So I was just weeping. And I wrote a blog, and I call, it, I call it The Curse of Comfort. And I'll just quote a bit of that one. I wrote this, there's a noble defiance in worshipping God in the midst of grim circumstances. And that is where the curse of comfort comes in. And I don't want to criticize Western, Western Christianity, but as products of our consumer cultures, we invariably end up conforming rather than being transformed in Romans 12 speak, acting as thermometers which reflect the reality of the environment rather than thermostats that set the very temperature of the environment. Thus, we often unwittingly craft ourselves a more comfortable consumer cross, and our whole worship experience can end up feeling shallow and anemic. And it's easy to turn to comfort, be that Facebook or porn or, or retail therapy or chocolate or whatever, rather than to Christ when things kick off. And it's no wonder why my most intimate corporate worship experiences in the West have been with the most obviously broken people. Tramps, alcoholics, prisoners, you know, Teen Challenge, that sort of thing, I'm preaching there. Because those people, they don't feel the need to maintain the, the facade that their lives are all in order. And God doesn't love us sophisticated people more than them, or them more than us. But what they do have over us is that they have been uh, stripped of the, the mixed blessing or curse of comfort. And in their unpolished desperation, God is extremely close. And I want to say, you know, God was so close to us in that assembly as we wept, as some of us were bricking ourselves about what was coming Monday morning, or even as we were leaving church with the burning barricades. He was so close, but he is that close now. We might not be aware of it, but he is here. He's here. And I hope that's a comfort because some of us, I know some of us are looking out, we're, you are going through a hell of a time. And it's really tough. You're just hanging on in there by the skin of your teeth. That is part of our faith journey for some of us at different stages. It's, it's not all cushy, but he didn't say it was going to be easy, did he? He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So don't aspire to comfort. That's not what life is all about. See, the problem is, as, as George Bernard Shaw said, God created us in his image, and we decided to return the favor. So we just make a God who, who buys into, you know, who, who votes the same way we do, who 
who has the same sort of pet peeves and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and when anyone says, for me, God is this or that, or to me, God is this, that's, that's it's idolatry. It's like, to me, you're just literally, we're literally making a God who rubber stamps exactly what we already believe in, who endorses our beliefs and lifestyle choices, that sort of thing. So what does it look like to be salty? You know, let's talk about entertainment. You know, you know that image of a frog in a pan of water. You put a frog in a pan of boiling water, he jumps out, he knows it's boiling. You, apparently, you take that same frog, put him in the same hob in the same pan of water, but it's cold, and you just turn it up by increments. That frog, it just sits there until it's cooked. Now, I think that's a nice picture. I don't think it's reality, but, but it's, it's a good illustration, isn't it? And I think, I think we're a bit like that second frog in this culture. And Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart. It's a wellspring of life. Don't, don't let anything in. So, you know, what, 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 do we, what do we binge watch, box sets, that sort of thing? You know, is, is it good for my heart? That's a good question to ask. Is it good for my soul? Reality shows. You know, I, I, I mean, I've never watched more than, I think, five minutes of reality show. because I. But, but, you know, Love Island, what, what's that doing to your soul? How is that normalizing sort of the utter debased cheapness of, of sex, for example? Now, I, I, Big Brother, I was debating whether to read this out. Um, this is from a number of years ago, but my, my sister was w w watching it, and I sat with her for a few minutes. I didn't last long. Um, but then I wrote this letter to her. So this, is, this could be written of, of any shows, and actually they're way more based now than from back then. But I wrote this, Dear Darling Sister, I love you. And what may have started out as a vaguely legitimate social experiment years ago with these reality shows has descended into something so pathetically based, and it makes me absolutely gutted that you, who I love so much and want to be proud of, can get sucked into it and called it entertainment. Now, don't put this down to my faith, although, of course, my faith de de defines my values. Put it rather down to my humanity, because I fear that you and the nearly 8 million people who are watching Big Brother, you're losing your humanity, because if you stick people in a cage and observe them operate as animals, and you actually create an environment to make them behave all the more animalistically, then your voyeurism debases you as well as them. You become less human. And ratings were plummeting, so what did they do? They lowered the ceilings to make it more claustrophobic. They put camera on them everywhere, even as they went to the toilets. I mean, come on. They got them all to sleep in one room with insufficient beds. They have people, many very weird, picked on ability to wind each other up. Mm, very wholesome. And I tried watching. I tried. I just, I just couldn't go through it. I ask you, do you have any reservations? And this is what went on in that series. Do you have any reservations about them flashing their tits and backsides, simu simulating oral sex, shaving their hairy butts, smearing mammaries with jam, getting others to lick it off, vomiting, wrestling to topless in the mud, having sex under the table, constantly swearing, and a whole lot more? Can you not see that you are victims of a tragically manipulative agenda of getting viewers at any cost to win the ratings war? Don't you think it's shameful? Don't you think it's wrong? Is there no such thing as right or wrong anymore? Now, the first person who ever won Big Brother, the first series, this is going back 20-some years, but literally the first winner ever, he was a Scotsman called um, Callum, and he worked at the orphanage in Burundi down the road from me. And he came back from Burundi, and he went on the show, and he was such a nice guy, and he was so wholesome, and so kind, and people loved him, and he won it. But the producer of the show said, we will never, ever again have a Christian on the show, because it's the lowest ratings. Isn't that interesting? 
And so I, I just want to, you know, above all else, guard your heart as the wellspring of life. Down will come baby cradle and all. What we sort of, you know, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus already, you've got the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And who is the Holy Spirit? Well, what is it? He is holy. And holiness is, is repulsed by that stuff, by sin. But actually, after a while, if you're that frog in the pan, and 10 years ago, what you were horrified by, now you just sit through unquestioningly. And if that's you, take that as a challenge from the Holy Spirit. This is not me judging. This is just expounding scripture. Do you hear that satanic lullaby? So looking at our culture, and I'm not, I'm not cherry-picking my pet peeves because literally this is taking it from the scripture, from this, this passage. If you look down to verse 27, Jesus addresses it. You've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone that, anyone that looks at women lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you're right, I causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Oh, Jesus, tone it down. Seriously. You know, but clearly he wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. And I think the church, and the problem about, we've lost our saltiness, we've lost our light. We're on the back foot. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching at Spring Harvest, and I was preaching about being on the front foot. And we are so on the back foot in this country. That's what the African brothers got to teach us. You know, in Burundi, we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're like, bring it on. This, this is power. This is beautiful. This is transformational. And we need to get back on the front foot a bit more. But Jesus, yeah, it's not a, he, he, it's not a popularity competition. He often spoke about hell. He spoke, spoke loads about hell. He didn't shy away from it. And our culture nowadays derides and scorns the very concept sees it as primitive and ridiculous. But no, the stakes are high. There will be a judgment, again, from this passage. He talks about that. The reality is, as uh, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Whereas narrow is the way and small is the gate that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus, in this passage, first of all, he offends us with his insistence on the reality of hell, and then he comes out with this ridiculous pronouncement of equating lust, a lustful look with adultery. I mean, come on, surely absurd. But it's interesting, isn't it? Today, in our nation, 4% of people believe that pre or extra marital sex is wrong. So, so 4%, 4%, 4 out of 100 people would say that the right context for sex is in the context of two people of the opposite sex in a lifelong union of marriage. Only 4% 4 believe that. 96% don't believe that. Doesn't that make the majority right? I mean, what the scriptures say is that if you're in a relationship right now with someone who's not a sexual active relationship, with someone who's not your husband or your wife, uh, then you're, you're, you're doing that stuff with someone, someone else's future husband or wife or someone who's certainly not yours in a covenant relationship. Now, ouch, that's a really high standard. That's really unpopular. But the only way to accommodate it is to tone down, to lose your saltiness or to hide your light. But listen, God's not a sports sport. I love this. This is Harvard sociologist, Professor P.A. Sorokin. He said this in his book, The American Sex Revolution. He's describing the Russian attitude in the, in the 20s. So, you know, Bolsheviks coming out, fiercely atheistic regime. And the revolution leaders deliberately attempted to destroy marriage and the family. And by the way, on a cultural level, the predominant voice in our culture right now is, a, is quite a militant cultural Marxism expressed. And it's, it's stated or unstated aims through various bodies. Through, so, for example, Black Lives Matter. We all believe that Black Lives Matter. But the, if you looked at the doctrinal statement of Black Lives Matter, it talks about 
uh, destroying the patriarchy and, 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 and marriage and, and uh, the family unit. And that, that is completely counter to what we believe as followers of Jesus. So the revolution leaders deliberately attempted to destroy marriage and the family. The legal distinction between marriage and, and casual sexual intercourse was abolished. Bigamy and polygamy were permissible under the new provisions. Abortion was facilitated in the state institutions. Premarital relationships were praised. Extramarital relationships were considered normal. Dot, dot, dot. Within a few years, millions of lives, especially of young girls, were ruined. They were wrecked. The hatred and conflicts rapidly mounted, and so did psychoneurosis. Work in the national factory slackened. The government was forced to reverse its policy. Now, that's fascinating. That was a social experiment of an atheistic regime trying to destroy the nuclear family, basically going to God and his ways. And it was it led to so much dysfunction and breakdown and wrecked lives and, and economic inefficiencies. They were forced to reverse their policy. Fascinating. Makes sense, I think, if we do that to God. So are you salty? Are you shiny? There's so much confusion all around us in our, in our age of moral relativism. Uh, because most of us, and I, I, I feel so aggrieved for the coming generation because they are so lost and there's so much mental mental unhealth, whatever the word would be. There's so much pain because there's no consistent moral plumb line by which to assess what's going on. It's everyone's truth, whatever truth, whatever works for you. And, 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 and there's no clear definition of what is right and wrong anymore at large. So issue, issues of sexuality, gender, identity politics, you know, all these, listen, they are massively important and delicate. And listen, what I'm saying, picking my words wisely, we need to, to listen well to speak sensitively, to love consistently with a love that does not judge or condemn because it's God's place to judge and condemn. And that's what he comes out again in this same sermon, chapter seven, do not judge or you too will be judged. But neither does it mean endorsing or buying into this worldview and this, 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 this militant agenda into endorsing views that actually run counter to God's work. So not so long ago, I had lunch with Peter and he was a school chaplain and he was in a different context, on radio, away from school, he was just asked of his view of marriage, and he took a biblically orthodox standpoint, and he, he said, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship for life. And one of the school kids, at a Christian school, no less, uh, picked that up and took it to, to the headmaster. The headmaster called him in and says, unless you actively, actively teach stuff uh, in a very pro way, you're going to have to step down. And he couldn't, in accordance with his conscience, and he got fired uh, on the spot, out by Christmas, and his, you know, I, there's some very heavy stuff that happened to him that I couldn't disclose. But, you know, I mean, that is, that is scary, isn't it? And, and you, you, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to find that chilling. If that's the consequence of not towing the line, not having free, free speech or freedom of conscience, and having to eagerly adopt this creeping Orwellian group thing. Down will come baby cradle and all. So listen, we've considered salt. Now briefly, let's look at that complementary analogy of light. So in verse 14, Jesus tells his disciples, you're the light of the world. Now salt, we're there to counteract the power of sin. As light, our job is to make visible or to illuminate, not with our own light, of course, but with Jesus' light. Jesus, in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. So we're meant to reflect his glorious light and we went to put it on a stand, not under a bowl. Again, back foot stuff. I think our light's often under a bowl, and we're ashamed. We don't need to be ashamed. 
you know, when we go around Fox Hill, and I invite you as the weather gets better, we're going to start going around Fox Hill knocking on doors again, just to share, share. You know, there's so much good stuff going on here. And no one on Fox Hill, the 974 houses, no one should be alone. No one should feel lonely. No one should feel isolated. We are here for you. We're your community. Literally, we're called St. Andrew's Community Church because we're here for you. And about 15 of you have come out with me. If you haven't come out with me yet, come out. Don't be afraid. What's the worst thing that has literally happened to me? Well, one guy slammed the door. I mean, he might have his issues, but, but uh, that's quite something, isn't it? When you're literally saying, hey, we're just here to, to help you. Uh, but in general, n- no one's offended because you're like, just there to bless them. You're literally saying, what can I do for you? Um, and then I just compare that because the worst, you know, and I've done it around the streets of Bath, but the worst reaction I've had pretty much through several years of doing this stuff on the streets, so the worst reaction I've had is no thanks. Are we scared of that? I mean, in Burundi, my guys, that we, you know, we have a team that goes and reaches out to Muslims, and uh, I was talking to them, and they said, Simon, when we're packing away our things at the end of our, uh, our, our outreach um, to the Muslims, and they are stoning us, it'd be really helpful to have a vehicle to make a faster getaway. You know, I mean, that's legitimate, isn't it? So let's not be ashamed of this message. As Michael Yusuf again writes, he said, the Greek word here is very similar to the word for a beacon that a lighthouse emits. So that beacon is bright, it's unmistakable in its purpose, it warns of danger, it directs to safe harbor, it provides hope for those who have lost hope. And every day we are surrounded by people groping around in the darkness, separated from the God who loves them. And guys, listen, listen to what I'm saying. We are not better than anyone else. We are just, as followers of Jesus, we're better off because we're forgiven, because we don't live under shame, because we know where we're going, because we've got a hope that can defy our circumstances, because we've got the Holy Spirit in us who can bring peace. There's so much, so much of an upside. So that's what we want to share. And, and, and salt and light will mean recognizing people. People are more important than stuff. Isn't that right? And yet we're in such a you know, materialistic culture. Relationships are what it's all about. I love the African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I want to go far with you guys. I want us to go far together. And you know what, Jesus, he looked at the crowd and he loved them, didn't he? He loved them in their lostness. And he wept over Jerusalem. And he looked at the rich young man whom he challenged, but the man walked away sad. He looked at him and he didn't go, what more? He didn't hate him. He just, he loved him. And that's the spirit of Jesus. We got to put Jesus goggles on and it's pure love. So everyone I look at, some people are less obviously attractive than others in terms of how they might be shouting at you or something. You know, we've had, we've had, I've had some interesting encounters, but if you still got the Jesus goggles on, you can still love them. We're called to love absolutely everybody, aren't we? And so are you salty? Are you shiny? In the workplace, values of greed, running roughshod, profit being the bottom line, everything. Integrity at, at work. What does that look like? I've got a friend who was, uh, who's just working in the city, and, and uh, someone stopped on the street and said, I believe God is using you to soak up corruption in the city. That's quite a tough word to receive, isn't it? And, and he basically, as a, as a righteous man with 140 employees was for 10 years he'd go in there on the edge of being sick every day because it was so heavy the weight he had all the people in his industry were saying were watching him as a follower of jesus saying you cannot make this industry interesting you can't be successful and be honest and a man of integrity and then just a couple of years ago uh 
the, the, the decision maker for the biggest contract in the world, multi tens of million dollar contract, uh, said uh, in front of two of the top, you know, Apple, Google companies in the world bidding the same contract. So I'm choosing him because I know he's a man of integrity. <sighs> Beautiful. I think of friends in, in Burundi, they employ 5,000 coffee farmers. They pay them, which is 5,000 families, and he, they pay them twice what the government pays them because profit isn't the bottom line. They're literally trying to lift them out of poverty. What's it look like to, to embody kingdom values? Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light. Again, it just uh, if we look at our culture, that shallow materialism, that pursuit of wealth and possessions, that worship of celebrities, it's, let's not be that frog in that pan of water. And salt will mean recognizing, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to skip.